Hello and welcome back to part two of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club's Neurology episode. Presenting for us today is Kim Van Vu, COVID-19 vaccination and Guillain-Barre syndrome, an analysis using the National Immunoglobulin Database from the UK. The article that we are discussing today was written by Kay et al, published in Brain Journal in February 2022. So obviously the context to this study is that COVID-19 has led to mass vaccination programs worldwide, particularly in the first world. And with all these very recently released vaccines, you know, there's been increasing interest in terms of what side effects people may present with, especially kind of from the emergency department perspective. So the really common things that we've come across are things like fits with the AstraZeneca vaccine and people coming with myocarditis post-Pfizer. So this particular study looked at Guillain-Barre syndrome and the interest with GBS initially arose in terms of COVID-19 infection, if there was a relationship there, and that ended up not being supported by data coming out of the UK and Singapore. And there's subsequently been interest in terms of whether or not there's a link between GBS and COVID-19 vaccination. And I think the focus here is on recognising that, you know, yes, these vaccines have obviously saved, you know, millions of lives, but also when these people come into the emergency department, what sort of pathologies do we have front of mind? So for this study, they had two main aims that they were assessing. So the first one they phrased is investigating the temporal relationship between COVID-19 vaccination and GPS and the population that they were looking at were adults in the UK who received any form of COVID-19 vaccination. And in the UK, the one that became the dominant vaccine used over there was the AstraZeneca vaccine. And then comparing that with people who did not receive it and then looking at the outcome of whether these people subsequently presented with GPS. In the second part of this article, because we've done two different analyses, they then looked to identify any features of COVID-19 vaccine-associated GBS. And about halfway through the paper, they kind of re-clarify this aim, trying to find kind of demographic or phenotypic characteristics of GBS cases and comparing individuals who had had a COVID-19 vaccination recently versus those who had not. In terms of the article itself, I couldn't really find a clearly dated hypothesis that they had put in, but the vibe that you kind of got from the way that it was written was that they were trying to show a link between vaccination and a subsequent presentation of GBS. And in terms of their study design, so again, there are two parts of this paper. So in the first part, they did a retrospective analysis where they looked at two different databases. So the first database that they used was called the National Immunoglobulin Database, NID. And that was used to assess for cases of GBS. I'll go into detail about what data is available there later. And the second database that they used was the National Immunization Management System, or NIM. And that was used to look for vaccination status. They looked at the period 1 January to 31st of October in 2021, and then subsequently made comparisons for the period 2016 to 2020. And then in the second part of the study where they were trying to characterise GBS presentations, they did a prospective surveillance study where they looked at cases of GBS that were reported, analysing people who did versus did not have a vaccine. So in terms of the data that they used, so the first thing that they used was this National Immunoglobulin Database. And I think something to keep in mind here is that, so what this database is used for is that in England, Scotland and Northern Ireland, 
this is the database that is used when people basically accessing immunoglobulin therapy. And what that basically means is that you are not necessarily capturing all the cases of GBS that are occurring in that period. You're capturing individuals who have sufficiently severe disease to warrant immunoglobulin therapy. They actually detailed in their paper kind of the criteria used in the UK, which is use grade four, more significant disability, disease progression towards intubation or ventilation, high probability of respiratory insufficiency or predicted poor prognosis. So they're kind of strengths and weaknesses to using this database. So obviously, you know, it captures the majority of the serious cases and they stated that IVIG was being used in about 86% of cases. Uh, what that obviously means is, A, you're missing a significant proportion of GBS cases. And in addition to that, you know, you're not getting the full spectrum of disease, you're probably getting the more severe end of presentations. And then in terms of vaccination status, they got that from the National Immunisation Management System, which actually records COVID-19 vaccination status for England only and subsequently missing Scotland and Northern Ireland. In regards to the second part of their study, so they aimed to characterise GBS cases. And the way that this was done was basically through cases that were self-reported by essentially neurologists, so people who are members of either the British Peripheral Nerve Society or the Association of British Neurologists. In this part, they captured a variety of different data, so demographics like age and gender for patients, diagnostic criteria, whether or not they had received the vaccine or had been infected by COVID-19 previously, and then also capturing things like symptoms and management. I think, obviously, when you're relying on any database, which is basically relying upon self-reporting, then there is going to be a huge amount of reporting bias, which I think we can kind of go into a little bit later. In terms of their data analysis, so for the first comparison of the two databases in terms of GBS cases and vaccination, just in terms of when this study was conducted, they only were able to obtain data from kind of the January to July period in 2021. And then they basically, you know, used trends from previous years to extrapolate this data forward to come up with numbers for the entire year. So just quickly going through some of the results that they found in this study, one thing I, th I think which was interesting is that they found that the incidence of GBS overall in this period where COVID-19 was quite prominent, the incidence of that was lower. And then within the period that they studied, they identified 198 cases of GBS that occurred within <coughs> six weeks of vaccination. And that equated to 0.618 cases per 100,000 vaccinations. Of these, 176 were after AstraZeneca vaccine and 21 were post-Pfizer. Also interesting to note is that only 23 of these cases were reported within six weeks of any second dose vaccines. So the majority of these cases, obviously, first-time patients are getting vaccinated. They also found that the incidence was a little bit higher in males after an AstraZeneca vaccine as well, and that equated to 1.069 cases per 100,000. Other things that I think will end up being relevant in clinical practice is that the peak of these cases was occurring at 24 days and the highest numbers was in that two to four week period after vaccination. And then they subsequently did a comparison of individuals within, you know, the, that first period versus those who were 43 to 84 days after their first dose and found that there was an excess risk of 0.576 cases per 100,000 doses. And they weren't really able to subsequently explain why that trend was being seen. In the second part of the study, in terms of the self-reported cases, there were 121 that were reported for this study. And they subsequently, in trying to determine if there were any kind of stereotypical features for GBS 
in vaccinated patients, they looked at individuals who had received the first dose of vaccine versus those who either had not been vaccinated at all or those who were more than 42 days after a vaccine. In this part of the study, they basically found that there was no significant difference, whether it be in demographics like gender and age or whose disability score or Brighton level nerve conduction study changes, or even so there was some interest in kind of if there were facial weakness changes, there was no difference there and treatment ended up being similar as well. Having said that, I think this part of the study does need to be interpreted relatively cautiously. So obviously, you know, there's going to be a high amount of reporting bias here. And this is shown by the fact that 87.3% of the patients in their study sample had received a vaccine. And this compared to in the other part of their study where that was only 30%. So that really shows how neurologists were much more likely to be entering cases into this database if they were diagnosing GBS and they knew that the patient had recently been vaccinated. And especially when there was all this kind of academic interest into, you know, is there a causal effect or association here or not? In addition to that, I think, you know, when they made that analysis about comparing with people who had not received a vaccine, it's worth noting that in this study, only 12.4% of patients had not been vaccinated and that actually equated to 15 people. I think when you're making an analysis there, that kind of reduces the power of your findings a little bit. Ultimately, something which I think is very relevant to just the way that this pandemic has kind of panned out as well is just the nature of the sample that they used in this part of the study. So in one of their tables outlined that within the sample, 90.3% of patients were classified as quote unquote white British, which, you know, in the UK and Australia and especially in Western Sydney, that's not really the demographic that we work with. So I think that really it is a relevant study, but I think we do really have to be careful in the way that we apply it when we're seeing patients because that's not the population that we see. And I think that will increasingly become relevant as these vaccines are now being distributed worldwide and slowly making their way to third world countries as well, where that's definitely not going to be the dominant population that people are dealing with. Amazing. And you touched on a number of points there in terms of limitations of the findings of this paper. Uh, you know, they suggest that Chadox vaccine equated to a, an excess of, you know, between 98 and 24,000 cases of attributable GBS. Obviously, a big study centering on the UK. Is this an externally valid kind of study? Is this something that we, we can translate to our environment here? You know, are there differences in GBS rates among people of different ethnicities or genders? Or how does GBS kind of present among populations? So in terms of the pathophysiology of Guillain-Barre syndrome, I think the major division is between the myelinating neuropathy versus axonal neuropathy. With the axonal cases, they tend to be more severe in the, t- in the way that they sometimes require longer to, to recover, maybe weeks, months, even longer. And they often need uh, ventilator support as well. Those type of cases are highly prevalent in the Asian population, whereas other populations have more demyelinating. So that's a big difference. And I guess the outcome may be slightly different between those ones. So in the, what's been reported here, and if you see one of the tables in the a clinical diagnosed patients uh, and the, from the second cohort, uh, 70 something of patients, at least three quarters of patients were demyelinating. So I guess there's a difference to take into, into account. The other thing is how these cases were ascertained in terms of allocated to 
group categories where the likelihood of how, how strong the, the GPS diagnosis was made. Mm. So they have four different categories and that's the Brighton criteria. So one is the highest possibility, this patient's classical GPS, ascending paralysis, more weakness than sensory symptoms. They have nerve conduction studies. They have a little bit pointer abnormal, high protein, normal cells, or mildly elevated. So with that association, they say, oh, look, there's no better explanation for this. This is level one. And then you have the other one, the second one, when you either have nerve conduction study, but no lobe puncture or lobe puncture, but not, not condition studies. And the three and four and four, when you say, oh, probably something else is not GBS. Okay. It's actually a percentage, a third of patients where or those reported, they had between three or four Brighton criteria. You need to be careful in interpreting how these patients were actually ascertained because there was a suspicion of GBS related to the AstraZeneca vaccine, these patients were treated. The beliefs of uh, how a vaccine may lead to GBS just because it was there in the environment, meaning that like, oh, there's some case report, et cetera. So the awareness was higher and therefore the, the threshold for treating this patient was uh, lower. And I believe that's a caveat of this study. And going back to Keith, your question, they were specific in you know, demelinating and GBS uh, as opposed to axonal. So I think that will may influence mm. how do we understand the path of physiology probably, but really don't know. Obviously, reporting bias plays a significant role in this in this paper. Do you think there might be any other kind of major limitations that might contribute to some of the findings or any confounders that explain why they found this? prevalence in the Chadox vaccine? I tried to apply my skeptical hat to this paper. Look, there's definitely some sort of a signal. I wonder if this signal is truly reflecting an association or whether it's a bit more coincidental. We do know that the AstraZeneca vaccine was by far and away the most abundant vaccine that was prescribed in the United Kingdom. Given the fact that the overall number of GPS cases in 2021 was not actually higher than the previous years, even accounting for the fact that you know the the trend was that the GBS diagnosis during the COVID pandemic period was dropping, could we truly say that that this is uh, in fact an association rather than just a factor of the fact that the overwhelming majority of the population during this period was getting vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine? I know that there was this spike in cases in you know the early months of the year and possibly there's some temporal relationship there between everyone getting vaccinated and there being that spike. That is an interesting thing to consider, but I wonder how much other behavioral factors that were going on in the UK during that period may have contributed. And perhaps you could also just tell us what actually predisposes someone to developing GBS. So good questions and a few things to unpack there. I think, first of all, looking at why there was overall a decreased incidence of GBS is most likely because we know that GBS can be stimulated post-viral and bacterial infections. And so I think as there was so much, you know, as everyone was staying home, as there was so much focus on social distancing and hand hygiene across the board, other 
infectious illnesses all decreased. And so I think the overall decrease in the incidence of GBS in that time period likely relates to that. I think that the association probably is real. I think there are, as we've discussed, there are issues with the data and kind of ascertainment bias, but it has been consistently reported across a number of populations and increased prevalence of GBS post AstraZeneca specifically. There has obviously been a lot of Pfizer and Moderna vaccinations rolled out as well, and there doesn't seem to be that association. I know I'm just trying to remember the paper, Hugo, you may remember, but there was a nice study that was done in an Asian cohort where they compared across two periods of mass rollout vaccination. And so it was uh, post the H1N1 and they kind of in this particular area rolled out to, I think it was about 85% of the population. They compared rates of GBS in the immediate post rollout period in that cohort. And then they were, that area was vaccinated with AstraZeneca. And again, there was an increased incidence of GBS. And certainly here, we've seen a couple of cases of post AstraZeneca GBS. So I think it probably is a real association. I think, you know, we know that association does not necessarily mean causations. It's it's important having those kind of caveats in your mind as you are considering this. But I think that there is a kind of a reasonable volume of evidence across different populations to suggest that there probably is a true association. To be cautious in interpreting the results of the paper is the way to go. When I read this paper, I had one question in mind. It was not about the paper itself, but how uh, this information can be misinterpreted or used against or for to these anti-vaxxers. You know, they would say, oh, look, a vaccine is going to cost me my life because of GBS or, or whatever. So this can be used wrongly and how the vaccine was very effective. Actually, the likelihood of having GBS with uh, the infection, the COVID-19, probably will be higher rather than having the vaccine itself. And the complications of COVID-19 and uh, mortality is certainly higher as compared to a GBS that uh, can be treated with immunoglobulin. The other uh, point here is that second dose was not associated with an increased incidence. So it's kind of a relief to know, okay, probably it is uh, just the exposure to the vaccine itself, and but there's a readjustment of the immune system, etc. And the other thing is that these patients uh, actually were really successful. They didn't analyze the mortality itself, but uh, I guess this will be similar. With this in mind, with this information, if patient comes to the emergency department having had the AstraZeneca and symptoms of Guillain-Barre syndrome, you will treat him as other GBS patients, okay? It's the same treatment, it's the same approach, but you may start to think, oh, this is was related to the vaccine itself. It doesn't change your behavior and how you treat these patients anyway. And if they ask you, oh, okay, this has uh, some legal implications as well, uh, being part of the uh, vaccine Neurological Complications Vaccine Surveillance Group here in New South Wales, a part of the committee, have been involved in evaluating these cases. And I would say 
the all the cases that be presented with the query of the uh, complication related to the vaccine, only a third have a strong evidence of being related to that. Okay, also no co causality, but just the correlation itself. So it's not all cases that you should think of. Uh, this is a complication of that. If you look at the period that they studied, I assume the majority of people in the UK were actually just also on their first dose. And if you think about, I think it's the three-month period in between doses that they were doing at the moment, the amount of data that you actually have to play with for if there is the association with GBS and second doses may have actually been relatively limited in that period as well. And so I'd be curious as to if they will kind of have a look down the track to see if there is any kind of increased risk. Because if you look in this study, the amount of participants that they had who were at the second dose was also incredibly small. The other question there being as well, whether people who actually were affected by GBS got AstraZeneca as the second dose or were rather got the same vaccine that they initially got the second time around. I think that's a very valid point. And I think certainly a practice in Australia was very much that if someone had a potential complication post initial vaccination, then you would change to a different vaccine type. I think there is, again, a body of evidence suggesting that the first AstraZeneca vaccination was more immunogenic, I suppose, than subsequent vaccinations. And, and I think that that's, you raise a, a valid point again, is that a problem in kind of ascertainment bias? And I suppose, you know, with increasing time, our thoughts on this will become more crystallised. But there was a, another study that was done where they actually, which I thought was very brave, in a cohort of, um, of individuals who had fits, gave them a second dose of AstraZeneca and they were fine. They did not develop a second episode of fits, which is not what our kind of standard practice here would be. But there is some signal that specifically the, the first dose of AstraZeneca was more immune stimulating. I believe they did actually touch on this at one point in the paper and spoke about, admittedly, it was a single case, but received two consecutive doses of Chanox vaccination, the AstraZeneca vaccination, and initially had a query GBS-like syndrome. And on the second vaccination, developed a much more convincing full-blown mm. GBS mm. picture. I did note that the paper did equate the excess of 98 to 140 cases of GBS that were attributable to the, the vaccination in this paper to the 57,500 to 62,700 deaths that were averted over the same time mm. period. So I'm glad that it did touch on what you're saying about the fact that this actually really needs to be sensitively interpreted mm. with caution. I, I thought maybe we could touch on GBS kind of more generally again, like with vertigo, it's one of the things that I'm most terrified of uh, missing in ED. Just because there's never a tendon hammer that can be found in ED. <laughs> That's true. I don't, yeah. don't know how we're going to find the video oculography if we can't find a tendon hammer. Yes. I mean, at this point, my fingers are so callous that they're basically a tendon hammer. I watched you slowly disappear with all your dreams and all your fears. Will I ever see you again? I don't know if we will still. The cases that I tend to see seem to be these people that have quite a clear ascending paralysis where the diagnosis really is 
fairly obvious. You know, does that mean that I'm sending home people with an early GBS? Uh, and I suppose on that note, you know, are there other features? I, I always look for kind of ocular bulb with palsies and things like that. But are there other features that I should be looking for that might kind of help either nail the diagnosis or help with identifying a subtype that might be relevant for how we manage these patients? With GBS, it is a progressive condition. And so, yes, it is possible that you may send away some early GBSs, but also is that actually a problem if you give them appropriate instructions? And so I think it's just a a case of advising people that if they do develop progressive symptoms, then they need to come back. Classical GBS is, you know, a classical presentation for a reason, ascending um, weakness and the areflexia. I guess the the couple of points, sometimes it can take a couple of days for the areflexia to develop. So if you're seeing someone very early on in the piece, then I wouldn't necessarily be swayed by that. I guess it highlights the importance. This is more from um, when they become an inpatient of us performing kind of serial examinations and documenting the progression of both the weakness, but also the change in reflexes. And and Kit, as you were touching on, I guess, just being aware of some of the GBS variants of which the Miller-Fisher syndrome is the second most common so that has the triad of ophthalmoplegia, ataxia and areflexia. So I guess that's just something to be aware of as well. Do the variants change how you manage these patients in ED or is that kind of later on? So Miller-Fisher variants, but also other variants that can affect bulbar function. I guess they are a red flag for us and they're people who we would have a low threshold for kind of ICU intervention because people can get into a lot of trouble very quickly if they have a bulbar onset. Otherwise, classical GBS, they're not going to run into respiratory troubles until the weakness kind of progresses up to the torso. They follow a a clearer trajectory. So I think just when you are assessing someone, I think it is important to ask them about swallow, about whether they're having any difficulty with secretions and about whether they're having any difficulty with their breathing, particularly when they're lying flat. And if there are any of those, then those are red flags and needing to be thinking about at least kind of flagging them with ICU. And the other thing that I think is is very important and is often missed for logistical reasons, not just in ED, but also on the wards is spirometry or at least getting some sort of measure. So so peak flow, but ideally spirometry at the bedside. And that should be happening and be documented when they come into the hospital. Then that should be done at least once a day, if not twice daily, whilst they are still progressing. Spirometry seems a very political thing to get Mm. nowadays in the COVID era. Yes, it is indeed, indeed. (laughs) I've seen a few different presentations that have had variability in terms of their speed of onset. Mm -hmm. Is that something that we need to be asking about or looking for? Yeah, again, I think it just is slightly predictive of someone's course. So if someone presents and they have had progression of their symptoms within hours, you are concerned that they are still going to progress within hours. Whereas if someone presents and they've had kind of a a week-long history, say, of progressive symptoms, again, it's not hard and fast, but I feel a little bit less concerned about those patients because they don't have the same kind of rapidly progressive tempo. The ones that we worry about, as Hugo mentioned before, are the axonal variants who classically do progress to intubation very quickly. And so often they will have a much more acute onset. There's scores that you can apply for these patients to uh, determine how they're going to evolve over time, whether they're going to need intubation, et cetera. So 
patients that have diarrhea evolving within one week. It's one of them. And you ask them to count from one to 10. They interrupt counting of their gasping. That's a red flag. Dysphagia as well. So the score, it also uses spirometry and more than four in indicator that will progress rapidly. So those patients, you will like to try to treat them faster rather than just wait and see. In terms of the the practical treatment that we offer, no, uh, it's still IVIG, but it's just about the level of support that someone may require and whether they're appropriately managed in a ward setting versus ICU. How do you decide which IVIG products you're going to give these patients? <laughs> Bloodstar decides for us. So Bloodstar okay. is the regulation body. So uh, when you have identified that someone needs IVIG, there's a portal that we log into and we can request. It's essentially just based on national stock availability. So there are different products that exist, but they are all pooled immunoglobulin. So there's not a difference. It just depends on what's kind of nationally available. And then it's just a weight-based dose. And if people really don't make significant improvement with IBIG, do you then move on Mm. to plasma exchange? I mean, I know this is a controversy, but... There has actually been studies that were published recently that show that serial treatment of patients, this was, it was particularly this one looking at second courses of IVIG actually do more harm than good. So you don't improve patients' outcomes and you expose them to greater risks of adverse events from IVIG. It's very distressing when you are looking after these patients and you're seeing them continue to worsen before your eyes. It's distressing to doctors, but also obviously to the patient and their families. And so some people would offer plasma exchange post IVIG, but evidence is that that IVIG or plasma exchange are kind of equally efficacious, but they should be given as a single treatment. There's a wealth of evidence with clinical trials showing that there was not much difference. Mm-hmm. That's the, the value of individualized medicine. If you try to look in the pathophysiology of GBS, so actually some patients may have underlying antibodies. So in the past, we used to test them for these antibodies. At the moment, it doesn't change our management, but you may have a surprise of finding an antibody that is actually pathogenic and then plasma change in these cases is useful. So even though if um, don't have a clear benefit from immunoglobulin, you change it to plasmic change, they improve. And once a couple, could make it a couple of days, could be or a couple of weeks, they deteriorate, you would give them plasmic change, they improve again. So that's a marker of the plex being working like this, and then these underlying pathophysiology. So you need to think about single cases, individualized cases when they say, oh, look, there's evidence of something working. So you need to keep pushing for the treatment. But I suppose that's a different subset to the routine GBS who just have their their initial deterioration and then plateau. Sometimes we do see people who have some more fluctuations across the duration of their illness. I want to talk a little bit about recognition. Hugo, you mentioned uh, you know your thoughts on reading the paper of whether it's going to be weaponized by anti-vaxxers. I I certainly had the same thought. But the other thought that I had was also, is this going to make me do something differently? Certainly my take home at the end of the paper was that given the prevalence of people who have had the AstraZeneca vaccine, a signal of maybe five in a million is not really adding much to an already rare diagnosis when I'm you know, seeing a miasma of patients in front of house who come in with all sorts of vague complaints. 
With that in mind, how do we recognize GBS in the ED and how do we not miss it? You can recognize GBS just by even before examining the patient. It's in wheelchair, it needs help to walk, or the symptoms are very prominent and still able to walk. So that's the first marker of or suggestive uh, of GBS. I guess you're not thinking of GBS at the beginning, but just uh, something going on with the nerves or the muscles. Not until you uh, ask specifically how symptoms have evolved or what are the combination of things and, and then examine them, you formulate your hypothesis. And the term that is useful or still useful GBS is polyradiculopathy. And that implies that the weakness, it can be uh, proximal and distal. So the classical GBS description, they have a lot of symptoms sensory, but at examination, you don't find much of sensory abnormalities. You have more motor abnormalities. But having said that, there's some variants that have purely sensory or pure motor or mixed. It doesn't matter. What you want to do is to determine if there is a sensory deficit, motor deficit. If there is areflexia, you think nerve dysfunction. So then you need to investigate. Those patients, you cannot send them home. You, you ask neurology. I haven't actually found any case that you guys have missed in, in ED at all. So most of the patients, of all the patients have seen with GBS, they are uh, straightforward. Uh, or even this variant or abnormalities that at the end ended up having this uh, a rare or atypical GVS variant that are being diagnosed in ED. So I'm not worried about someone missing GVS. Perhaps the only thing that even neurologists may miss is facial palsy. Facial palsy that progress from unilateral to bilateral or is asymmetrical, that's a red flag. So that has been, has been found in COVID-19 as a complication, but also in some of the AstraZeneca vaccines. We have seen it here in Australia, and we have some a case series of these patients presenting initially to ED just facial palsy, and then the sent home with uh, Bell's palsy diagnosis, but they return with weakness. So I think this is the only thing to be aware of. And so is that sort of analogous to this Miller-Fisher variant where it's kind of reversed trajectory, central to peripheral instead of peripheral to central? Or is the facial nerve just the peripheral nerve in that situation? That's correct. So is the peripheral nerve in effect? Why? We don't know. But it was recognized early as a variant of GBS, but more frequently seen in COVID-19 and then after vaccines they say, look, uh, it looks very similar. So it was a red flag for us to consider that relationship between vaccine and facial palsy. I'm actually surprised that we don't miss more, but I think it just comes down to the, the fact that when you work in ED a lot, a lot of things really stand out to you. And one of the key things I try and drill into, mainly the registrars get it, but mainly the RMOs and things. If a patient can't walk out of the department, you've really got to stop and think why and most of those patients will probably not be able to go home. Whether we pick up the fact that it is definitely GBS or whether we just figure out, oh, this is a problem, this needs to come in and this is who I'm going to send it to to figure out what next. I guess they're two different things. But I think unlike the other neurological diagnoses and things that are a bit more subtle, someone not being able to walk or someone struggling to walk or 
someone really distressed by large motor symptoms is something that probably stands out to us. But I agree that something like a facial palsy or or other things can be more easily missed because they're less obvious to the eye, especially in the age of mask wearing, it won't stand out to you immediately. What sort of presenting symptoms do people with these sort of Miller-Fisher variants actually come in with? And does it tend to be diplopia or something along those lines or? Yeah, so often diplopia or ataxia, and then sometimes you will have people presenting because of bulbar dysfunction. And then with this sensory normality, so the proprioception, vibration, position sense, is abnormal in with these patients. And actually the, with this Miller-Fisher syndrome, you can, because there's uh, an, some specific antibodies for this one, GQ1B, you can have pupil involvement, you have abnormalities and in, in pupillary reaction as well. So that's also a clue. In terms of like other historical features, other than recent infections, is there anything else that we need to be aware of? Usually I would ask about recent infections, vaccination, not just COVID vaccinations, but post-vaccination GBS is a previously described entity. In women, you need to ask about abdominal pain and also look for prominent dysautonomia because porphyria can present with GBS. So it's something not to miss because it's potentially, the treatment is quite different Well, for GBS uh, porphyria versus uh, autoimmune GPS. It continues to get more complicated. <laughs> I'm going to be terrified now in every abdominal pain I send home that I'm missing porphyria. <laughs> I've been looking for it for a while and I'm still yet to come across a case. <laughs> James, I was wondering whether maybe you could touch on some of the important ED management priorities for these patients, both um, in centres like Westmead, um, big tertiary centres and also more further afield in regional areas? Yeah, I think a big part of us, uh, what we do is identifying them, identifying the severity and stratifying that. I think that makes a big difference between a patient who's just sort of going to sit in the bed and get a bit of advice, you get some IVIG compared to the one that's going to be more your critical care patient. I think probably the biggest issue that you're going to come across, especially in departments that uh, maybe are running at a bit of a stretch, is the rapidly progressing one. So someone who, you know, starts to feel symptoms getting worse rightfully presents to ED. And the one that you identify early can sometimes be the dangerous one because then they sit in a bed, then they stay there for a long while. No one really sees them. They start to get a bit weaker. No one gets around to doing a spirometry anytime soon. You don't get that examination over time that you otherwise would get. Um, and these patients increasingly are, you know, spending hours and hours in emergency departments, sometimes over a day. And so I think that's one of the biggest pitfalls to be wary of. The rest of the management is largely sort of like splitting it into the critical care aspect and the, and the subspecialty aspect, I think is the best way to think about it. When the critical care comes into it, you know, if they are losing their airway or they need respiratory support, I think that's a time where people feel comfortable jumping into, into action. But when it's sort of teetering on that edge, I think that's frequent examination is the biggest issue. But it's also the, by far the most labor intensive because just having the time the mindset and the ability to keep coming back to that patient will be the thing that I think should worry us the most. How quickly do we need to be initiating treatment on these patients? I mean, obviously, if they're, you know, if they have a terrible respiratory acidosis and can't breathe, we need to put a tube in. But, um, you know, in terms of the rest of the priorities. I guess you need to solve first the acute problem. So even if they are due to delay the immunoglobulin plex one day, 
unless they're severely affected or progressing too much rapidly in within a day. So the, I don't think that would uh, change much. Complications of GBS is obviously the respiratory failure, but you need to treat the respiratory failure instead of the GBS. So it's a combined. So I would prioritize definitely the acute problem and then follow by the treatment for, for GBS. IVIG has to be approved by Bloodstar, which is our national approval body, but there is 24-hour support there. So it is possible to get IVIG. It's just a little bit of a logistical challenge and there are, you know, as there are with these things, multiple phone calls, et cetera, needing to be made. So if I had someone who was progressing rapidly, I would want to get the IVIG into them sooner rather than later. But obviously, if it's someone who is needing respiratory support, then that should always take priority. And then you would get the IVIG into them, but you wouldn't defer. I think the other really important thing with the supportive management of these patients Drawing a parallel to the thing we do in ED more often, which is toxicology, I think identifying a rate of decline and who will get worse is important and not acting too late. Trace and I actually had an interesting case. I think Trace was a lot more junior than he is now, and I was a registrar. It was the middle of the night, and a man had presented with an extremely large TCA overdose and had presented within you know 20 minutes, and he just went to a random acute bed. And then I think I saw the dose come up on the screen. I'm like, oh, that can't be real uh, in the triage. So she's like, oh, yeah, he did actually take that much. But he looks fine now. <laughs> he won't be soon. And I think an hour later, we're intubating him after, while he was trying to actively see the research. But identifying that, identifying the rate of decline is probably more important in these cases because you won't obviously get that. What, how bad is it going to be? So if they do have a really sharp decline in their vital capacity, you, you need to start thinking, oh, I, maybe I'm, I'm going to have to tube this person sooner or later. And so even just triggering that set of events, even if it happens in ICU, but just identifying that patient is going to be crucial. Are you ever going to be preemptively tubing these patients? I haven't come across a really sick GBS that needed a, a intubation in ED. Obviously a lot that need monitoring and to go to HDU and things like that. I think the current teaching or the schools of thought, I'm happy to be corrected, is if they have if they have issues that require intubation that are obvious, obviously you need to tube them. But prophylactically, if you really do see that rapid decline, especially in their respiratory function and their vital capacity, and if it rapidly falls over a few hours, I think you really have to start thinking about prophylactically intubating that patient. I don't think you're going to see that rapid effect of IV, IG, even if you magically manage to get it very quickly. I think realistically intubating them might be the safest thing. Are there cutoffs that you use for intubation in terms of FEC or... Spirometry. So I've got 30 mils per kilo as my kind of red flag zone, not that they definitely require intubation. Hopefully we have identified it before then because these people should be getting serial spiro and if we're just seeing a decline, but 30 mils per kilo is my kind of definitely need to be discussing with ICU cutoff. Say you've got a GBS patient and you're out like 300 kilometres from here. Mm-hmm. Are there difficulties in terms of actually accessing it for patients or are these patients that you need to transfer out? I suppose if someone is at a very remote hospital, then there may be access issues, but it's something that most blood banks at a tertiary hospital would have. They, they should have at least some supply. And so, because usually you give it as a two grams per kilo in a divided dose, often split over five doses. So most of the time, I I have never encountered a situation where we haven't been able to give the first dose. And then sometimes they have to get some in 
but it's, it's a fairly standard product for a blood bank. So as long as a hospital has a blood bank, they should be able to access it relatively quickly. I guess the key question there is who are you transferring out in someone who's, you know, presenting to a regional area? I think that when I'm seeing a patient in a regional area, I'm thinking of a couple of things. Obviously, the first thing is how can I get the treatment to the patient? And so the question there is, do I need to get the patient to the treatment rather than the treatment to the patient? Not infrequently, just because of familiarity with processes, with uh, nursing familiarity, with that sort of training, the logistics will be easier to just get the patient to the treatment. Obviously, it depends where you are and you know what, what the network and setup is like. The other thing to consider, though, is what sort of support and expertise does this patient need? If I've got a patient and I'm in Auburn or if I'm much further afield, small hospital, I don't just want to know, oh, I can get IVIG into this patient. I want to know who is going to be monitoring this patient to be able to accurately identify if they're going to deteriorate or accurately guide the next steps in their care. And can that happen distantly or does that need to happen in person? And so I would argue that for a GBS patient, the assessment and the prognostication is quite nuanced. And so I would always want them to be in a center which has two things, A, specialist neurology services, and B, also specialist critical care services. Because the thing that you've always got in mind is what can go wrong. And what can go wrong in these patients is that they gradually progress into a respiratory failure and no one recognizes it. And then when it does happen, there's no one there to help. I don't think that I would ever leave a GBS patient in a regional place, but then obviously the sort of timing of how to get them out depends on what's immediately in front of you. Brilliant. Um, so Kim, would you mind giving us a couple of takeaway points from this paper just to contemplate? The main thing that I got from this paper is, you know, from the ED perspective that you know, there is a low incidence of GBS, but it's something to keep in mind when you, especially now that we're getting waves of post-vaccination patients, obviously when they come with neurological symptoms, you consider other diagnoses as well, but also remembering that some of these rare things do happen. What they did come up with in terms of the time periods that it does arise, I think that also helps you to kind of make an assessment on to, you know, how likely is this going to be and how high is it in my list of differentials when I'm thinking about the patient. Thanks very much for that, Kim. I'm now going to invite Hugo to talk on the brain and music. What I'm going to do first is just ask you guys, uh, do you like music? Absolutely. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Do uh, any of you guys, including James, uh, play any instruments? I play the piano. The main interesting point about this topic is that you uh, listen to music and uh, us as humans and uh, actually as a different communities in the world, uh, they listen to types of music and the music they listened or it can be either for spiritual purposes or just to gather around. The music makes you move, uh, makes you, it's just your body shake. But also it's involved with emotion. And there's some in interesting new studies on how music can reshape the brain. So, um, and I'm just going to invite you guys just to watch a YouTube lecture by Peter Vust, V-U-U-S-T. 
uh, this guy has published a lot on the brain in music. So I guess the question that I was trying to ask here is when you listen to music, what sort of parts of the song or piece of music that you like the most? Is it the rhythm, a melody, the harmony itself? And those very different parts of a song that may be very appealing to your brain. And the way I'm saying this is because your brain actually predicts what's going to happen in the song. That's been studied, studied how the brain actually is trying to formulate a hypothesis, what is the next part of the song, even listen to and snippets to the song and then stops. Your brain automatically will do, what will do is just try to guess what's next, okay? And often is the case that the brain is right. So it predicts that. Is that that reinforces actually a learning pattern. So if you listen to classical music, rock music, pop, etc., so the brain can predict any of those changes. But what this guy has found is that it's actually the brain has a rhythm, an inner rhythm. Any type of rhythm can be predicted by the brain. And it tends to learn that in patterns, in patterns. So there's certain songs that it, they're sitting in your head. There's some there's parts of the song that you have listened in other songs. It looks, it sounds familiar to you. In the context of a learning situation or emotional situation, you may remember being in a gig or a concert with the, the song that you like the most. You were enjoying that time with your friend, girlfriend, boyfriend, or family. And it, it makes sense to you, okay? So that is the brain working itself. There's some studies suggesting that if you train in music or even listening, because you can listen to a very particular type of music and become an expert in that, or a producer, you don't need to do necessarily know how to play a song like a master or a professional, but just know about music and you can be a producer as well because you learn that from actually when you're a baby. And not being a producer, but just listening to song. The lullabies is not about how the words are that are being spoken. It's about the rhythm, the melody, the harmony. So all brains have music in it. So we are creatures of music and we use music to learn. We use music to understand others. Sometimes we gather to listen uh, just uh, a band, for example, because we like the, the, uh, the songs, etc. So it's a matter of getting into that environment of sort of the, and the music itself and to understand yourself, how your brain works, how understand others as well, uh, as well in um, a matter of communications as well. So that's my segment. And again, I invite you to look for Peter Vust. It's called Groove on the Brain. And we'll put a link to that on our show notes. Thank you, Hugo. I, does anyone else get goosebumps when they listen to music? I do. I get a yeah. very physiological response to yeah, music. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think I get an autonomic response that increases in proportion to alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of part two of our neurology episode. We'd like to invite you again to contact us on Club at gmail.com and we'll see you for part three shortly. Keep my feet on the ground by the water
wish my life could be like this always.